What if I tell you that having a baby could be easy? How can you have your beautiful, positive, unmedicated, and natural birth so that you can step into your conscious motherhood? Hello, my name is Vivi. I am a midwife, a birth coach, and I am a early motherhood coach. And I'm here to show you how birth can be easy. You know why? You're never going to forget that day. And you want it to be the best day of your life. Tune in while we'll dive in on how you can have your positive birth and you can have a positive motherhood. Happy listening. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this new episode of Your Holistic Midwife. It's always me, Bibi, your favorite midwife. And today I am so, so honored and grateful and I'm joined by a special guest. And his name is Dr. Stu. Welcome to the podcast. Bibi, thank you. Your enthusiasm is infectious. I feel really good right now. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about you before we actually dive into today's topic. For those who don't know, I am an obstetrician. Um, I'm from the United States. I trained in the um, uh, University of Minnesota uh, Medical School. I did my residency in Southern California at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Uh, that's not very exciting. Um, I came out and I was practicing very medicalized form of obstetrics, just like all residents are trained in, in your country, in my country. Uh, and I had the good fortune, and this is the abbreviated version, by the way, I had the good fortune of being approached by some midwives early in my career and asked to be, uh, if, if I would take their transports from home. And I said, sure. And I didn't say sure because I liked home birth. I probably thought like, Every other doctor thinks I probably thought it was scary or foolish. And I didn't do it because I knew a lot about midwives. I did it because I wanted to make money. It was a different era back in the uh, uh, mid 80s. Uh, it wasn't like now where doctors finish their training and then they come out and usually get a job working for somebody now, work a shift. That's sort of how medicine is. But back then it was you built your own practice. Uh, you hustled and you covered emergency rooms. You covered free clinics. Uh, you, you, uh, took vacation coverage for guys who were going out of town. And you also uh, were approached, I was approached by a midwife. So I took the, uh, I took that on. And um, most of the women that were transferring into my care were women who just had been laboring at home for a really long time and had gotten really tired or their labor had stalled out for the, they weren't the, they weren't the emergencies. There were some, but they were mostly that sort of thing. So there was a lot of time when they came to the hospital for me to speak with them and then they would get an epidural and then they would get Pitocin because the contractions would slow down. And, and then the midwife would hang out and this was long pre COVID and midwives would, would come with uh, their clients and spend the whole time there uh, taking care of them. And we would spend a lot of time in the, in the lounge talking. And I began my slow journey uh, about hearing a different way of doing things because you know, we're indoctrinated in, in medical school and residency to only believe one way of doing things. And if you don't hear another way, if you don't see another way, if you live inside a box, you never know what's going on outside the box. And I I was um, intrigued enough to begin to change the way I thought about things. And after 10 years in practice, I formed a collaborative midwifery practice with two certified nurse midwives at a hospital. Um, and for 15 years more, we did great work there. We had very low C-section rate. 
We took on all comers. The midwives would take care of the normal stuff. They did the annual exams, the pap smears, the well woman visits. They did the routine OB stuff. They did the postpartum stuff. They did the normal deliveries. And I would do the abnormal pap smears that needed a biopsy or a colposcopy or somebody needed surgery or somebody had a breech baby or twins or or needed a cesarean section or a vacuum or forceps. And that's something that I would take care of. And it was a it was a really good way to practice. Unfortunately, uh, we were never accepted in the community very well. We were always sort of ostracized. We were always sort of the outsiders. We made um, the OBs uncomfortable because we had really good numbers. And this may sound a bit arrogant, but it's not. It's the truth. Our C-section rate was about 7% wow. over the uh, 10 years. And their C-section rates were in the high 20s. Yeah. And now it's it like just... 35% here. <laughs> yeah. And this was this was back in the 90s. And 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 it was it was not because they were taking a different sort of clientele or more high risk it was because just simply the model by which we were practicing which was the collaborative midwifery based model where our prenatal visits were somewhere between 30 and 60 minutes long um and the midwives came in early we didn't have people come to the hospital right away if you broke your bag of waters we didn't tell you to come right in um which is what most other doctors do and then you sit around the hospital and you end up with that whole cascade of interventions that leads to all these the, these high intervention rates and high C-section rates, induction rates, uh, epidural rates, low satisfaction rates, all those things. Um, but after 25 years in practice, longer a little bit, um, the hospital finally found a way to get rid of us, and that was to not renew my privileges. So <clears throat> excuse me. what they did was first they took away the midwife's privileges, then they took away uh, VBAC, then they took away breech birth. And then they were going to not renew my privileges. So it was in a situation where, like in your country, I could fight them, but it's you're you're fighting the people that 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 make the rules. So it's very unlikely you're going to succeed. And if you do, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And all you're going to succeed is to stay at a hospital where they're out to get you. So I was convinced by my midwife friends and a couple of good advisors to to leave the hospital system and go into home birthing. And I started at home birthing in uh, 2010, I believe. And for the next 12 years, 12 and a half years, um, I took care of women at home who wanted an OB, whether for whatever reason. Some just wanted an OB. Sometimes I would just assist the midwives because they would have an issue. And then I would get bolder and I started to do breaches and I started to do twins and I started to do type 1 diabetics and hypertensives at home. And I said, you know, I thought about it. And when you think about something outside of the box in the midwifery model, you come at it from a from a not a pregnancy as illness sort of uh, direction. You come at it from, okay, pregnancy is wellness. She has this problem, but why does this problem have to affect how she gives birth or where she gives birth? If the problem becomes something I can't manage at home, then she can always go to the hospital. But just because she's a diabetic or a hypertensive or has a breach, why should she have to come in at 39 weeks and get induced or just get in an automatic C-section or whatever? And the babies have to go to the NICU or the, or the nursery for observation because the babies are infants of diabetic mothers or, or whatever and that by hospital protocol. And I was just, you know, I became an out of the box thinker. And then I, I began to blog when blog was still, it was 
a thing and now nobody blogs much anymore yeah <laughs> that I, was like i feel like it was like 20 years ago or 15 years ago something like yeah, that yeah it was about 10 15 it was about 15 years ago and yeah. and in 2013 i started a podcast which has yeah. kind of taken taken off now it's called the birthing instincts podcast yes my, i listen to it every time <laughs> well, thank you thank you with my colleague uh, bliss young who's a midwife yeah, and he's amazing you know we talk amongst ourselves sometimes sometimes we have guests and um, now I and I and I also started going around the world and I teach breach and twin um, delivery skills because the medical system is not training them anymore. And doctors are coming out trained to be fearful and not trained in the skills that actually make their profession unique. If an OB doesn't really know how to do a breach delivery or pull out a second twin or put on a pair of forceps, what is it that they do that makes their profession unique from any other profession? Because pretty much everything else a gynecologist does can be done by either a, another specialty or a subspecialist in obstetrics and gynecology. So the generalist OBGYN, which is most of the, most of us, um, is going to create their own obsolescence. And, and for me, it couldn't come soon enough because unless they change their, their way of approaching pregnancy and the way they approach pregnant women, um, sort of they deserve to be obsolete actually <laughs> so that's, that is so true that is so that's true. that's how i got here i never would have seen myself being here yeah doing what i'm doing now um when i first came out of residency or even when i went to when i when i decided to become an OBGYN resident um you know i was very medically trained i was very well trained i'm really good at um medical stuff but i wasn't good at not medical stuff and probably 80 85 percent of women um, there's nothing wrong with them. They don't need medical stuff. And midwives are actually the experts in normal birthing. And doctors are really good at high-risk birthing, but they're not very good at normal birthing. That is and the so system, true. And, this, and the system just propagates this dichotomy because um, it's designed you know, to, to do volume. In order for a doctor in any practice, whether he's an employee or she's an independent Physician, in order to make a, make ends meet with what insurance and other state funded um, healthcare pays you, you can't individualize care. You have to do volume, and when you do volume, you simply can't do um, as good a job as when you um, have more time for each patient as an individual. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. So I um thank you for sharing your story. Um going back to the home birth. Uh, so what you're saying is that where you are is legal for a doctor to attend home birth because in Australia if you are a doctor, uh it's not legal for you to attend home birth. That's why we can't have doctors here. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I don't know who makes the laws. Uh, I've <laughs> I've often laughed at laughed at the at the uh, image of a bunch of legislatures who know nothing about healthcare or any other subject for that matter, um, being lobbied by people who have a financial or a, some other interest, a power structure interest in something and be, and then just deciding that that's how we're going to do something. They don't know anything. The rules and regulations are made most often by people who don't know anything about what they're regulating. And it's the same thing. Yes, in my country, a physician can do a home birth. The problem is that almost none will um they're sort of been brainwashed to believe it's dangerous um or they're afraid to take that leap to let go of the rock in the middle of the stream because they're afraid of what's around the bend and so they're they're you know you're happier with the devil that you know than the devil that you don't know and 
doctors don't know what it's like to be free and they don't know what it's like to do a birth without having an anesthesiologist around or a NICU team around or, you know, nurses to do all the exams and call them at the last minute so they can show up and catch the baby. Um, they don't know. They don't know what it's like. They don't know another model. So, yeah, in my country, uh, it's in all 50 states, I believe doctors can do whatever they want. Um, but obviously, every every state is slightly different. It's what midwives can do. Uh, so that's the whole I don't know what it's like in your country. With the different yeah, in Australia, um, like on like we are regulated by APRA, which is our like you know board, whatever. And in the little you know rules, it says that yeah, if you are an obstetrician, you cannot attend home birth or you lose your registration. Yeah, it makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So we uh, are left alone. There is no no way we can have an obstetrician in a home birth. So anything we have to just transfer. We just transfer. Yeah. In, in my country, it's it, the it's, the silliness is just it runs so deep. In some states, it's illegal for a midwife to help a woman have a home birth, but it's not illegal for a midwife. I mean, excuse me, it's not illegal for a woman to have a home birth. So she can have a home birth, but if she has anybody there that's skilled and qualified to help her, then that's a crime for the person that's helping her. So uh, uh, tell me how that makes sense. Oh my! If they gosh. don't want women to have home birthing, then they should just make a law that says women can't birth at home. Yeah, like they have in some countries, like Armenia. I think it's illegal. Yeah, to get birth uh, and at also home. in Emirates, and I think in Thailand as well. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I don't. I don't know, but I, it sounds. It sounds like that. So I don't know what happens when a woman accidentally gives birth at home. It's like she guilty yeah. of a crime. Yeah, that is crazy. Oh my gosh. Anyway, right. let's dive. Yeah, it's even stupider, if that's a word, or more stupid, to just say that a woman can't choose where she wants to give birth and who she wants at her birth. Yeah, that is right. so true. That is so true. And unfortunately, it is the reality where we are uh, living in at the moment, you know, and that leads me to today's topic, which I want to really dive into, twins, twins especially. And the reason why is because, as many of you guys know, I had my twins and I... I was left with no choice because the hospital only wanted me to either have an induction or a cesarean section. Midwives, they said, no, we can't look after you because you have got twins. And so in the end, I decided to actually free birth because there was no other way for me to have a home birth otherwise. And so that's what I did. I just went on and I had my babies at home and all went well, you know. But the thing is that in Australia at the moment, if you are having twins, your only option is either to free birth or to go to the hospital because there's not many midwives that they will attend um, a twin home birth. And the main problem is also that uh, most uh, professionals, they have lost, as you said, the skills uh, for twin birth. So as soon as you know that a woman is having twin, she's just in the high risk. But I think it's important to start with number one, Let's make a little bit of a distinction between twins and twins because we've got different twins, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I, I could talk about this for a lot longer than this podcast lasts. I mean, I do a two-day seminar and the whole second day is about twin birthing. But let's just start, let's start with um, the idea that the medical model sees almost every pregnancy as being high risk. As a matter of fact, the American College of OBGYN 
has this in one of its clinical guidelines. It says pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition. So when doctors are coming at it from that point of view, you can see how there's anxiety and fear that permeates the system. And you said something that I, I, I just want to correct a little bit. You said the doctors have lost the skill of doing twin births. The truth is the doctors are not taught the skill. Um, those that know how to do it should be doing it, but they decided not to do it. It's not that they lost it. It's just that they got sort of coerced or influenced in some other way to stop doing it. Now, the young doctors are not taught the skills that are necessary for twin birthing. We'll get into that in a little bit further down the road. Okay, so twins, um, two babies. There's uh, the most important thing with twinning is the what's called the chorionicity, or it's the, um, it's the type of twin you have. And what we call fraternal twins or non-identical twins is something called diamniotic dichorionic twins. They're, those twins are completely separate. They have separate placentas. They may be attached to each other, the placentas, but there's no communication between the placentas. There's no risk of this thing that people con concern themselves about, which occurs in what's called monoamniotic, excuse me, monochorionic diamniotic twins or monodi twins, which are identical twins. And that is this thing called twin-twin transfusion syndrome. An interesting little tidbit is that I read in several different papers that uh, about one out of every seven sets of fraternal twins or die-die twins is actually identical. It's just that the eggs split completely before implantation occurred, as opposed to after implantation occurred. And then you have what's called the mono-mono twins, where the twins are in the same sac, and that can run the gamut of they can do really well to very high mortality rate, depending on if they get entangled. That's the high rates of anomalies and twin-twin transfusion syndrome. There's even something which slang is called um, um, Siamese twins or what's really called conjoined twins. It's extremely rare. I've seen it once in 40, whatever, I've been doing this now for 40-some years. And uh, yeah, 42 years, I've seen it once. And I do, and I get a skewed population. I'm not practicing currently. I've taken some time off and I'm enjoying myself at this age and I'm not sure that I'm going to go back to being on call. It's really been nice being off call. Uh, and I travel a lot, so it's hard for me to take clients that are due because it's not like you schedule a dental appointment and you show up on Tuesday and get your teeth clean. When somebody's due, it's like a three or four or five week window. So I'm not practicing right now, but I've, I, my practice was very heavily tilted toward breaches and twins because there's so few choices. And I was in a big city at the time. I was in Los Angeles. I've now, I've now moved to uh, rural Utah and live in a little homestead in a small town, which I really love. But so those are the, the, the three types of twins. And when you have die-die twins, they're not as high risk as people would tell you that they are. And high risk, by the way, God, we could just go off on every tangent there is. High risk, you know, um, higher chance does not mean high risk. And so the term high risk has gotten become universally regurgitated to describe just about everything, but but risk is relative to what it, to what the person who's experiencing it thinks it is, and so what may be risky to one person may not be risky to another. An example of that is that say something happens one in a hundred times. Some people people think that's too high a risk to take, and they'll choose some another path which actually carries with it a risk that's equal or greater, but they don't know it because they're not told. Or some people think, well, that's a ninety nine percent chance of it not happening. I'm not going to worry about that. So it's how the numbers are presented and how uh, doctors in the medical system skews their bias. And 
there's nobody out there that has no is, is unbiased. It's just that I think midwives and, and people like me, we, we're aware of our bias. And we're freely open to admitting it, whereas the medical model will not generally do that. So um, if you have die-die twins, then there's no reason that those those twins, depending on the position of the twins um, and how the pregnancy goes, because twins, there is more risk of things like preterm labor, premature rupture of membranes, gestational diabetes and preeclampsia are slightly higher in twins. So possibility of, of one twin not growing well, because now you have two babies. So if there's a small percentage of growth restriction in one baby, now it's maybe twice as high because you've got two babies. So you've got to watch for those things. But if they don't occur, then a twin birth at term is just two vaginal births, a baby followed by another baby. And if you come at it that way and, and be trusting of the of the of nature's design, then it's it's not scary. But if you come at it from grooming that woman all the way through her pregnancy, that something terrible is going to happen at any moment, that doesn't set the woman up for a very high chance of success because her, your mindset is extremely important. And it doesn't set them up for a high satisfaction rate afterwards because they'll, they'll figure at some point they'll figure out that maybe they were gaslit or maybe they were led down a path they didn't need to, or maybe they had interventions that they really didn't need to. And their baby ended up with problems anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm, de I'm deviating here. This is what I generally do when I talk, but, but the, <laughs> That's okay. but the, it makes sense. It makes sense. If, if the medical model were doing great, then people could argue. Yeah. All these interventions make some sense, but we've, but your country and my country, the, the C-section rate has risen 500% in the last 50 years. And the rate of cerebral palsy or injured babies is is not gone down. And the rate of maternal morbidity and mortality has probably gone up. And we have poor breastfeeding rates. We have poor VBAC rates. We have higher chronic illnesses in babies and children. Uh, there's lots of factors involved in that, but certainly how we give birth is one of them and the microbiome and all that. All that. And so it's not doing well. So when they insist on you doing their system and their system sucks, then it's reasonable for women to start to question that. And they should question that. And they should make their doctors a little uncomfortable by asking the right questions. And you can always tell whether your doctor is worth your time and your money by how they respond to your questions. You know, are they giving you time? Are they looking at you in the eye when they answer you? Or are they blowing you off? I mean, how can you accomplish anything in a six-minute office visit? You just can't. So with die-die twins, I have found that there's almost no reason that if they make it to term, and for me in my practice, term was 35 weeks and above, because twins tend to mature a little more rapidly. And by the way, if you have a home birth with twins, and again, I don't know if we want to talk about just twin birth in general or home birth, but if they give birth at home in my country, and the babies were having a little more trouble breathing than you'd like, and after an hour, you know, they're still breathing too fast or their oxygen sats are a little low, then they, they can go to the hospital. But the mother could still have the home birth with the home microbiome, with the people around her that she loves um, in her own uh, bedroom. Uh, and then we deal with it afterwards. Whereas in the hospital, they almost always want to bring you in at 37 or 38 weeks with die-die twins because they'll tell you that the risk of stillbirth rises, which is true. But it, that the fact that it rises, it rises in singletons as well. But the fact that it rises isn't important. The fact that it, it's how much does it actually rise? And they probably couldn't tell you that. They will just tell you it rises. And we don't want your baby to go past a certain point. 
and they bring you in for an induction without any discussion about the risks of induction because it's the default position. So I've determined that high risk to a physician is not really a number. It's actually something that just makes them uncomfortable. And because certain things that are higher risk, they do easily. And other things that are lower risk, they are uncomfortable with, and they then call them high risk. So that's, you know, with die-die twins, what, we, what I require for, for in my practice, whether it's at home or in the hospital, would be is that first twin be in the, um, what I call a stable longitudinal lie, which just means either head down or in a proper breech position. And, and people say, oh my God, you could you can have a twins where the first one's breech? And the answer is, of course you can. And people say, well, well, my doctor says that that's really, really, well, first of all, they don't like breach in any singletons either. They don't like breach at all. But they'll say, well, the, the heads can get interlocked. And well, it's, by the way, the literature doesn't support that. It's extremely rare. It did happen to me once and I was able to resolve that because, uh, you know, I was skilled and well-trained and, and been practicing that way for a long time. And you get used to the spatial relationships of what's going on inside. And you know your client and you know which way the babies are sitting and you know all that ahead of time. It's not like I'm walking in and meeting a stranger when I'm taking care of somebody. It's a, Again, it's the midwifery model. Um, but yes, you can have a breech first twin. And the second twin, I really don't care what position it's in. Uh, we wait and see how the second twin comes down. And if it comes down in a funky position or the baby gets in trouble, you can reach up and pull it out. And that's a skill. Um, it sounds, I mean, I, I, I don't make, mean to make it sound so ca cavalier, but it's a skill that, that I was lucky because I trained in a time when this was considered a normal thing to do. Breach delivery was just considered a variation of normal and yeah. breach extraction was considered a skill that you had to have. And this was in the early eighties when I was training. So it was yeah. still considered normal. Yeah. So we'll get, we'll get more into the birth in a minute, but oh. going back to the type of twins. So we've got uh, die die, which is oh. two babies, two placenta, two sacs. And these are the one that you said that, you know, depending on what position is the first baby, you know, most of the time they it's okay if they get to term which is over 35 weeks you'll be able they will be able to have a vaginal birth um a vaginal birth and then after safely that and with, safely and with and with somebody who knows what they're doing the problem yeah. is is that there's fewer and fewer people knowing what they're doing yeah yeah that's exactly right and then the other type of twins that we have is uh, mono die which is one placenta and two sacs, right? Yeah, it's it's one placenta, and there and well, it's it the placentas are fused. It's sort of one placenta. Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're fused together. Um, they generally don't communicate. Only in about fifteen percent of the time do they develop this thing that's potentially life threatening. We'll talk about that briefly in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Um, if they don't develop that, then there are slightly greater risks of discordance between the babies. But again. Discordance between the babies is not a number. Discordance means, you know, if one is a certain percentage bigger than the other or smaller than the other. Um, what you're wanting to know is, are, base, are both babies growing fine on their own growth curve? So you could have a difference in weight of, you could have a seven pound twin and a five pound twin. That seems really different. But if they've always been that way all the way through, then that's the way they're growing. And sometimes and that's early a big on, thing. That's a big thing here because a lot of mom 
they are told, you know, that the babies needs to grow at the same pace on the same weight. And they don't want them to be in discordance. I think it's like a 10% just, but I think it's most twins that actually will have more than that 10 to 15%. And so that's where um, the intervention starts. Yeah, the typical number is 20%. And, and the truth is, if you look at a growth curve, it starts off very narrow. So there's very little difference. But as you get further along, get toward 40 weeks, it gets wider and wider apart. So if one baby's on the eighth percentile and one baby's on the 40th percentile, at 16 weeks, they're going to be fairly close together. By the time they reach 36 weeks, they, they're going to be a significant amount apart, possibly, but they've both been growing perfectly well. They're little dots on the growth curve. And I know that that with, with twins, they, they tend to overtest with twins. And they tend to want to do an ultrasound every three weeks or four weeks with with die die twins with mono die twins yeah two weeks yeah every yeah every two about weeks, every two yeah. weeks from about 16 weeks on yeah <laughs> uh, for, for for mono die twins for die die twins they don't need to scan you that much but they do it anyway some of it i think is just habit and some of it i think is is money making um i don't know how your payment system works in your country but in mine it's sort of fee for service you more you do you more you get paid which is a bad system for healthcare. yeah but that's, yeah it's pay by taxes so like yeah but the doctors the, the doctors still get money every time they do something from the government instead of from an insurance yeah. company so the more that they do the more money they make they're not they're not globalized at least not the maternal fetal medicine doctors are yeah. they may be for the delivery and uh, you know the prenatal care and delivery but for all those ancillary things they're not but let's not let's not even go there today cuz uh that's not really relevant probably to your audience just understand that you're going to be told you need all these tests and sometimes it's true but some but a lot of times it's not true but with monodye twins certainly you want to have closer surveillance because this thing that ttts thing or twin twin transfusion syndrome can develop somewhere usually between 16 and 28 weeks and it's pretty obvious when you start to see it one baby starts to get too much fluid one baby starts to get too little fluid and it doesn't grow as well and one baby starts to become the pump for the other baby and if nothing is done about that, and it used to be up until about 20, 25 years ago, there was nothing you could do about that. And usually one or both babies may die. Now they have this miraculous surgery. One of the really beautiful things that obstetrical medicine has done is this surgery where they can go in and they can uh, laser uh, or use high-frequency ultrasound to ablate the communicating vessels between the two babies. And those babies will generally make it to survival. They'll almost all go prematurely but they'll all make it to survival. In my, in, um, We have a paper coming out. My friend Rick Safries from Breach Without Borders and I have a paper coming out on twin birth. And we had uh, 21 monodye twins in, the, in our paper and four of them developed TTTS. And all four, of those, all four of those moms had the surgery. All eight babies of those, all eight babies survived somewhere between 29 and 33 and a half weeks. They were all born. Wow. But they all, they all made it. They all, you know, and, and you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, that not what would have happened. Um, but assuming you don't develop that and you reach 28 weeks, the likelihood of suddenly developing TTTS after that is very small. It's never zero, but it's very small. Um, I'd like to say it was zero because I've never seen it. And two of my maternal fetal medicine colleagues have told me they've never seen it, but I never like to say never, even though I just said never about seven times. So, um, <laughs> But it's, it is uh, 
unlikely to happen. And there, in my practice, what we then at that point did is we reverted them to more on the die-die twin road or pathway. And we, we slowed down their ultrasound frequency and we gave, you know, and we didn't treat them any different. And we didn't think they needed to be induced at 32 or 34 or 36 weeks. We let them go until they went into labor or until they developed some other issue that required them to be uh, intervened upon, something like preeclampsia or cholestasis of pregnancy or true growth restriction, something like that. So uh, when those things don't develop, the risks to the babies having a bad outcome is very small and the benefits to going longer are probably pretty great. And certainly the benefits of labor and being born nature's way with babies deciding their due date and being exposed to the mom's bacteria and microbiome and immediate skin to skin with delayed cord clamping um, makes all the sense in the world. And the data supports that. The medical model does not. So what you're saying is that even with mono dye, you can still have a vaginal birth with no induction and nothing else. Absolutely, that's true. Okay. Finding someone who will support you in that will be yeah, exactly. hard. Because, <laughs> because I don't because think they doctors, do, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because doctors have been indoctrinated to believe that if they go longer, the, the baby might die in utero, one of the babies or both. And, you know, while, you know, tangentially that's true with any baby, as I said earlier, it, it's not the relative risk that matters. It's what the actual risk is. And I have numbers, which I, I don't want to, you know, sort of go off into the weeds with this, but the numbers up until you get to about 40 weeks with twins are not even statistically significant. When you, don't have, when you don't have growth restriction, hypertension, or diabetes involved in the pregnancy. And the twins are growing fine, and there's no anomalies, and they're relatively, and they're growing on their own growth curves. Then to intervene is a choice. Women need to be given the choice. And they, but they're never told the risks of induction. They're told that induction is the only choice or the best choice. And, the, and to not get induced is risky. But they're never told about the problems that can occur with induction short-term and long-term to babies down the road. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So if we go then into the third type of twins, those are the ones that they are mono-mono, right? Which means there is a placenta and one sac. Right. The, uh, twins are about 30, uh, twins are about 3.2% 3 of all births right now. When I was when I was a resident, it was one in eighty. <laughs> okay, now it's one in thirty-three. Yeah, and that's because of IVF. Yeah, yeah, like. that's uh, yeah. I was going to say that is because of IVF. We have really high, like especially in USA and Australia, like these you know super developed countries, they do have really a high rate of IVF at the moment. So, and the rate of mono mono twins is about one in three hundred twins. So about one out of every 300 sets of twins will be mono-mono. So that's it's, you're talking about something that's fairly rare. All right. You can do the math and figure out what the actual risk is in any given pregnancy. But it's about one out of every 300 sets of twins. But mono-mono twins are at high risk. Um, the risks include higher risk of TTTS, uh, a significant risk of something called cord entanglement. Because they get all tangled up in each other because 
they, they, you know, they're flipping and swimming around in there and their cords can get all tangled up. And there's a high rate of, of uh, fetal mortality, uh, fetal demise with, with that. So the, the standard for that is if once you get to viability, which is considered 24, 25 weeks, the standard hospital thing to do, and I wouldn't argue with this because I haven't seen it enough to know if there's any data otherwise, is to put you in the hospital and you basically sit there. And usually by 32 or 33 weeks, they want to take your baby, babies, excuse me. But here's the issue. If you get to 33 weeks and they're fine, why wouldn't you wait till 34? And why wouldn't you wait till 35 if you're sitting in the hospital? Because every week that the baby spends in your, in your utero is probably worth three weeks in the NICU. That's a, that's an old, you know, you know, thing we used to, we used to say all the time. One day in utero is worth three in the NICU. So if you keep a baby in at 32 weeks, your baby's probably going to spend five or six weeks in the NICU, the newborn intensive care unit. If you make it to 34, it might only spend two or three weeks in the NICU. If you make it to 35 or 36, it might spend no time in the NICU. So again, but the standard teaching is once they reach around 32 or 33 weeks is to get them out before they, before there's a demise. And I don't know enough to tell you that that's wrong, but I would tell you that my profession is wrong so often in the things that they do that I would not trust that one either. I would have to look deeply into that if I was taking care of somebody with mono, mono twins, so I could give them proper informed consent and then let them decide what they want to do. Yeah. And yeah. whether or not they need to be in the hospital that whole time is hard to say. It is. There is Every not enough data with mono mono for us to say anything really about it because we only have seen one side of the spectrum i guess well and they don't also consider the the toll it takes for a woman to be in the hospital for eight weeks mm. i mean what if she's got three other kids at home so if she you know if they're thinking that well if she's in the hospital and she's on wearing belts all day long to monitor the babies if something suddenly happens we'll be able to we'll be able to fix that the truth is it's probably not the case because she's off on the ward someplace no one's really paying attention to her suddenly someone 10 minutes later looks at the monitor and one of the baby's heart rates is down by the time they take her back and get her back down the hall into the operating room and get the or crew and get an anesthesia all that stuff available they're probably it's probably not going to make any difference so each woman should weigh for themselves the value of being in a hospital closer to an operating room versus the detriment of being in a hospital closer to an operating room and decide which is, you know, do I want to be away from home for all that time? Is it really going to make a difference? Or can I just come in and get monitored every now and then at my doctor's office with a non-stress test and an ultrasound as needed to determine that things are still going along fine? Or if I start to see a problem or, you know, that sort of thing, then we would intervene, uh, and put you in the hospital if necessary. So in our world, I think most women would choose to stay home, but that's not the advice they're gonna get from most maternal fetal medicine doctors. And because um, most OBs are not gonna be taking care of you for st stuff like this. This is- Yeah, this is yeah, over, absolutely. This is over their head, right? Absolutely. So if we go down the TTS uh, um, story as well. So this is the condition that uh, uh, can come in mono, mono die or mono mono is that what you said right and it can never happen in die die twins okay and exactly what is it okay 
Well, I, I think I said earlier, one tw uh, there's a shunting of blood between the two twins, and one twin generally starts to get the lion's share of the blood, and it, it basically becomes polycythemic and um, develops polyhydramnios and usually a pericardial fusion because the heart is overstressed because it's pumping, it's too hard. And the little one starts to, to not make urine, and so eventually it becomes really oligohydramnios and doesn't grow well, and you can't even see the kidneys or the bladder on ultrasound anymore. And if you don't catch it early enough, then theoretically both twins will will die. And it's just it's just a, a, a different pressures and an open shunt uh, between the two babies, which shouldn't be there. And sometimes there's very small vessels that communicate. And again, without getting too technical, that's called twin arterial perfusion syndrome or TAPS. And that ultimately doesn't really cause a problem with the baby's growth or prematurity or anything. It's ultimately when they're born, you look at one baby and it's very cherry red and the other look at the other baby and it's very pale. And you go, yeah, wow. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, one in rare cases, one baby may need a transfusion or something like that, or one baby may need an IV. But these are not, these. that's not a serious thing. So that's a smaller less potent version of TTTS. And again, like I said, it happens in 15 to 17% of mono die twins. Um, and again, mono mono are not something we'd spend a lot of time about, but it's probably a little higher in that. I'm not sure why, um, because it really, it's the same embryology more or less. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if uh, the pregnancy goes on well, and I think like we'll just try and focus on monodie or die-die. So if the pregnancy goes on well, if you are monodie or die-die, you can have uh, a vaginal birth without an induction. Yes, you can. Like I said, we, you asked this question earlier and I said, yeah, if you got to find somebody who's going to... yeah supportive of that but you ultimately are in charge of your own care the problem is is most families don't know anything yeah and so they they they, they hire the physician or they're assigned a physician and they assume that that person's an expert yeah but we have to stop making that assumption exactly right and, and i think the, the main the reason, yeah do you go, go ahead now, and I think the main problem has to do with positions because I've heard like I'm I'm on all the twin groups because I'm a twin mom, right? And the main problem has to do with positions. So I, um, a lot of moms are saying, you know, one of the baby is in breech position. One of the baby, like maybe the second twin is not in a right position or both twins are breech and in breech position. And so they only get offered to have a cesarean section. Right. Right. You asking me what I think about that? Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, so <laughs> Okay. So here's the deal. Um, properly selected breech vaginal delivery, whether it's a singleton or twins, is a perfectly reasonable choice with skilled hands. The problem is you don't often confine skilled hands anymore because they stop teaching it. So doctors will skew their counseling with anybody who's got a breech baby, and whether it's a singleton or one of the twins or both twins are breech, to say that it's dangerous. And again, this is the expert, and the expert's telling you it's dangerous. What, what, are, what are you supposed to know differently? But the truth is far from that. Truth is that, that, there are, that most of the scientific research, uh, and again, scientific research can be skewed. So you have to decide how to cherry pick your the data that you're going to believe and not believe. But I always tend to lean on the research 
that leads to less interventions and, and less uh, monetary gain. So if a study shows that doing nothing is the right thing to do, I tend to trust that over something where you're doing something is the right thing to do and everybody gets paid more. Uh, that's sort of a simple basic rule of looking at studies. But so, but here's the thing about it. We know that over 50% of twins worldwide, at least one of the twins will be in a breech position. Over 50%. So if an OB is not skilled in breech delivery, that OB is not an expert in twins. All right, that'll be, I, I, this may be slanderous to say that, but that'll be doesn't know knows as much about twins as your your auto mechanic. <laughs> right? Because they're not an expert in it. Yeah, true. All right, it's like me telling a car guy how to fix my engine. I have no idea. All right, these guys, they, they have no, they don't, they're not experts in twins. So they should not be taking care of twins. So, if you're taking care of a woman through the entire pregnancy and at 39 weeks she comes in your office, the baby's breech, and you're not an expert in breech, the honest ethical thing to do is to tell that woman, I'm not an expert in breech. I can only offer you a cesarean section. Breech vaginal delivery is reasonable, but I don't know how to do it. But there's a guy over at that hospital that, you know, Dr. Bissett's over at uh, the Queens Hospital, wherever it's called, I don't remember what it's called, in Sydney, knows how to do breech delivery. So why don't you go have a consult with him and find out? That would be reasonable, but a lot of women aren't going to change their doctor at 39 weeks. But with twins, you find out at 11 weeks or 12 weeks that you've got twins and you're at OB and you don't know anything about breach delivery, you should tell that woman, hey, congratulations, it's wonderful, you've got twins, I'm not your guy. You need to go find somebody who's an expert in twins. But they don't. They don't. They just start grooming them for down the path toward a, a induction or not even induction, but a cesarean. And then they'll tell them that, well, I'll, I'll, I'll assist you with twin vaginal delivery if they're both head down. Yeah. But being both head yeah. down doesn't mean after the first one comes out that the second one's going to stay head down. That's exactly right. So then you end up with a, a, a vaginal delivery for twin A and a C-section for twin B. That's, yeah. that, is, that is malpractice. Yeah, that is what's happening. Except in, rare, except in rare cases. That is really malpractice because anybody that's doing twins should know how, once twin A comes out, to be able to reach up if... Again, it sounds brutal. It is, sort of. But to reach up and be able to uh, grab the feet of the second twin, no matter what position it's in, and do what's called a breech extraction. And that yeah. skill is what midwives are still keeping alive. Midwives are the torchbearers of that skill. OBs, for whatever reason, generally it's the system they're involved in. I'm not talking about any individual OB has nefarious motives to not learn this, but they don't teach it to them. And once you're out either an employee of somebody or paying your own malpractice, you're not about to do things that you're not comfortable with or you're not going to be allowed to do. So you don't even get to make the rules as a physician at that point because you're working for a large organization that tells you we don't do breach delivery here. You know, we don't do a VBAC after two C-sections here. We don't do this. We don't do that. Um, and so they don't have a choice. But they're, but they, but with twins, you should know, you generally know early you should be able to find somebody who's going to give you the option because vaginal birth for twin pregnancies at term, when properly selected, is safer for babies, safer for mother, and safer for mother's future babies um, than doing a cesarean section, that, period. That, 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. So you were saying before with the vaginal birth, uh, the first baby needs to be either in a cephalic position or in a breech position, correct? In a proper breech position, which includes frank breech, which is where the legs are up, the feet are up by the face. Baby's in like the diving pike position. Yeah. Um, complete breech where the baby's sitting with its butt and its, you know, its knees are bent and its hips are flexed also. And uh, so it's sort of sitting cross-legged or Indian style or something yeah. like that. And or even incomplete breech, which is where one leg is folded underneath the baby right along the butt and the other leg is sticking up by the baby's nose. Um, any one of those three are fine. The ones that aren't fine would be footling breech, which is really rare in term babies because there just isn't room. Footling breech means the baby's sort of standing. Yeah. The legs are the hips are extended and the knees are extended. Mm-hmm. When a foot comes out first in a term breach, everybody uses the term, oh, there's a footling breach, which be, it's a terrible, it's a it's used bad terminology because it, you see a foot, you think of footling, but that's footling doesn't mean a foot's coming out first. It's generally a complete breach where the foot drops. It's it's normal. It's a normal thing if you if people who know breach. Yeah. So one of those three positions, complete, frank, or incomplete breach, is generally fine. We don't like to see the cord down below the butt, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but there's very few positions that a baby will be a breech positions that aren't amenable to a vaginal delivery, uh, to vaginal delivery. Yeah. At term, at term, yeah. we're not talking about preemies now. Preemies is different. Exactly. Right? So, so it doesn't matter what position is this baby at 28 or 30 weeks. No. Because that is no. what's happening also. Like women get told so early on the position, the position of the babies, and of course they freaked out. Well, it's a it's a tool that's used to to funnel you down a path toward the where they want you to end up. Yeah. So if your baby your babies are are breached at twenty eight weeks, both of them doesn't really mean that they're going to be breached tomorrow, yeah. let alone four, five, six weeks from now. Yeah. You know, sometimes baby A will get settled down low in there, and then it mm. gets harder for that baby A to move. Mm-hmm. baby b is a crapshoot it's like you never know what baby b is going to do but <laughs> i can but baby, confirm <laughs> what's that you can confirm that i can confirm <laughs> yeah so um but it, yeah it doesn't really matter and and again we shouldn't even be talking about position of the baby at 28 weeks now with a singleton breach when you get to be about 34 or 35 weeks that baby is persistently breach that's a time when you want to talk about spinning babies and acupuncture and trying to move but with twins those things tend in my experience over all these years tend not to not to work you know you you really if all you can do with spinning babies and that sort of stuff is improve your pelvis improve the you know the laxity of your pelvis the motion of your pelvis um you know to make your body stronger those sorts of things chiropractic work those are all helpful but as far as trying to get a uh, twin A to turn is not very easy because twin B sort of, it's like a lock and key. They're sort of stuck together in whatever position they're in. And uh, so it makes it harder. And I've tried to do external cephalic version on twins a couple of times in my career. Was, oh, I wow. wasn't able to, I wasn't able, well, I wasn't able to do it. But this was in the early part of my career when I was still doing hospital birthing. And if the baby yeah. was, bre- if a twin was breached, first yeah. twin was breached, then they got a C-section. Even I did that. Oh, yeah. oh I, I, I didn't do what I do now always. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. I was trained that breach first twins you can't do because the heads could get stuck. 
Yeah. And then I, and then, you know, 10 years ago, I started to do a deep dive into the research and I realized that, you know, it, the evidence doesn't support that at all. Although it yeah. did happen to me once, as I said, but the evidence doesn't support that yet. It's used as a um, sort of a, a canard. Uh, it's a false argument to get you to submit to yeah. whatever it is that they want you to do. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and, and the sad thing is, BB, is that, that because there's a lack of skill out there, Mm -hmm. There really are a lack of choices, not necessarily because the choices are bad, but just because there's a lack of choices. Yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. So a breach birth can be done. Absolutely. Yes. Right. Yeah. In singleton or twins. I think you've asked yeah. me that like three times. You, yeah. want me, you, want me to, you want me to emphasize that? Yeah. No, no. Yes, world, it needs to be emphasized because... Like what is happening right now is that there, is, there are a lot of people, a lot of doctors that they are still saying, actually, no, it's not safe. If the first twins is breached, you can't have a breech baby. If you like, if you, if your baby is breached, you can't have a breech birth. And it's so told so many times that that is still the norm, you know? And so that's why oh, no, I'm just, like, I keep asking because I'm like, yeah, I want these, to make these, it these clear. Doctors are you either, can have a breech baby. <laughs> these doctors are either, in, I don't think they're evil. I think they truly must believe that, but they, but they haven't done a deep dive. They haven't looked at the data. Mm. And it's interesting the way we're talking today. And just in the last day or two, there's been a, a doctor on Instagram. Who's, yeah. <laughs> this video is going around where he's talking about, that a, a C-section is so safe and easy that why wouldn't yeah. you do that? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And talks about the risks of a baby's head being entrapped yeah. and all that stuff. And it's classic. It's classic yeah. fear. It's classic fear mongering. And I don't even want to get into who this guy is. I did a, I, I did a little research on him, uh, but I, it, that's not important. The, the important thing is that he's wearing scrubs and he looks, uh, he looks academic. He looks like he knows what he's talking about. Yep. But in fact, <laughs> is, he doesn't know what he's talking about. And um, I'm not sure why he even put out a video on breech birth. He's not an expert on breech birth. So why would you do that? What I mean, so somebody like him bothers me more than somebody who just quietly says breech is dangerous. Do you do a C-section? He's going out there purposely to scare women out of a choice that's quite reasonable for properly selected women at term. And but he doesn't, you know, I don't know what his motive is. Yeah, that's exactly right. So that's why I asked you like probably five or six times because I want people to like hear it again and again and again that yes, you can have a vaginal breach, you know, and even if one of your twins or both twins, because I think like the main problem is that if both twins are breech, it's a no. So here it's a no, no, you can't have a vaginal birth if both you can, but, are twins. But in real life you can't, I mean, the data doesn't support that. Yeah. And here, and by the way, for your listeners, this is this is some good numbers. This comes from the Royal College of OBGYN, mm -hmm. which has the best numbers. It's from their 2017 Green Top Guidelines on Breach. And it talks about the danger of this. We're talking about singleton breach birth now. It says the risk of neonatal death with a term breach for by cesarean section is one in 2000. The risk of neonatal death with, from a vaginal breach delivery at term no other complications involved, is one in 500. So you're talking about a fourfold increase in risk between a vaginal breech birth and a vaginal a cesarean for breech birth. Now that fourfold increase sounds high, 
But if you look at a chance of it not happening, the chance of it not happening with a cesarean is 99.95%. The chance of it not happening in a vaginal breech birth is 99.8%. If you ask people the difference between 99.8 and 99.95, they're going to say not much. But the real kicker is we shouldn't be comparing vaginal breech birth to cesarean for breech birth. We should be carrying vaginal breech birth to head down vaginal birth. And the risk of a neonatal death with a head down vaginal birth, according to the Royal College, is one in a thousand. So essentially what you're saying is we're going to recommend cesarean sections because one extra baby in every thousand births will die from a breech birth than from a head down birth. So we're going to section 999 women to save one baby. But what's the complications from 999 cesarean section? How many mothers are we going to lose? How many future babies are we going to lose because we have now a scarred uterus? And we may have the VBAC and the, and the ruptured uterus issue. None of that comes yeah. into play. So now if a woman is told that information and she thinks, I want a C-section because I don't want to take this one in a thousand chance extra, then that she's made an informed decision. Maybe, she's, maybe not, but she's made a decision. But if she's told that it's really, really dangerous, which is what doctors say, the head will get stuck, you know, baby will suffocate, whatever. Um, they're, they're not being truthful. Because one in a thousand is a 99.9% chance of it not happening with a head down baby. And it's 99.8% chance of it not happening with a breech baby. And we're not talking about morbidity. Morbidity is about the same, you know, as far as a broken clavicle or a brachial plexus injury or something like that. But we're, but that's, those are the numbers and they're put out by the Royal college, which has what I can, again, I'm cherry picking my data. ACOG doesn't even have numbers on that. The American College. I don't know if uh, Anzog has has numbers on that. I don't. I don't really know. Um, but uh, you know, the Royal College seems a reasonable number. And again, if you if you were if you were talking about lowering risk, then really you should section all head down babies too, because you'll save one one in every thousand babies you'll save by doing a cesarean section, which is the same what you'll save, but with breach. So yeah, really, that's exactly right. <laughs> so it, again, the, this is the thing with statistics and with counseling that doctors tend to either not understand or are purposely being obtuse because they're using relative risk when relative des risk doesn't mean anything unless you know what the denominator is. In this case, the denominator is a thousand, and we're talking about one extra. In, a, in, a th in a, every thousand births. Now, if that's you, that's tragic. Yeah. But if you have a complication from an unnecessary cesarean, that's or so your baby's surprising. taken early and ends up in the NICU, or you yeah. have a wound infection, or you have a bowel obstruction, or you have a ruptured uterus in the subsequent pregnancy, you have chronic pelvic pain, uh, you know, these things are, or poor breastfeeding or postpartum depression, uh, which is higher in women who have cesareans, especially scheduled cesareans. And your baby has less chance of being exposed to the proper microbiome. So your baby may have lifelong health problems because you didn't at least wait for labor to ensue. You you said, well, you're breached, we better, or your twins are breached. Let's just, we'll just section you at 37 and a half weeks. Oh, they're a little bit early and they're having a little breathing problem. Now they have to go to the NICU. And by the way, when you do a C-section for twins at 37 weeks, 36, you have a three times greater risk of babies going to the NICU than if you waited to 38 or 39 weeks. 
but that's not a number they're going to tell you either. Because it's, again, it's a small increase. Three times a small number is still a small number. But if you use the same statistical trickery that they're using, then you could make it influence people whatever way you want. Yeah. We're supposed to be more trust. We're supposed to be more trustworthy than that. Yeah. Our, prof our profession took an oath. Yeah. That's and every, yeah. every single day in every single doctor's office, and every single hospital, uh, they're violating their basic tenet of medical ethics, which says that that the use of coercion, even subtle coercion, is never acceptable. And when you when you tell people things to coerce them to down a path or when you when you threaten them in any way, shape or form with child protective services or thing, there, there's statements about that, that it, it's classically unethical. And yet it's done every single day and it's considered the standard of care, which is why I hate the term standard of care, you know, or, or community standard. Well, you know, okay. I mean, I live in this community, but, but you doctors are not my community. My community is midwives. Yeah. And my <laughs> and so community good. standard is what, what we would do in the midwifery world, not your world, yeah. but that's not how they look at it. Oh, you live in Los Angeles. Then you're stuck with the Los Angeles community standard. Well, why does the zip code dictate your, you guys have zip codes in Australia, by the way? Uh, we had postcode. Okay, postcodes, right. So everybody knows <laughs> what I mean. Everybody knows what I mean. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I tend to, you know, I, I get passionate about this. You can tell in my voice, I get, yeah. I go off. Just, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I just want people to understand. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's why I was like, I need to get you on the podcast because the more like, you know, we get you to talk around, the more people will listen. And, you know, somehow we are going through into that direction i would say and uh, i guess like my my other question was uh, once because uh, i think like that's where i've also seen like so much intervention like maybe they will say yes for you to have a you know a vaginal birth but then once the first twin is out there is not a lot of time given to the woman to actually have the second twin and that's where it Either goes straight away into an extraction or into a cesarean section. Correct. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. I want to just say that I know you can't do home birthing with twins in Australia, but the success rate of any type of birth is better in the home if you're comparing exact similar cohorts of women mm -hmm. than in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And it's simply by the model by which midwives practice. The success mm -hmm. rate of most twin birthing in, in most of the academic papers which support it is in the 60 to 70% range. And in the home birthing world with multips, it, uh, we, uh, we had a 98% success rate. And with primips, it's a lot less. And there's a difference between primips and multips. Our primip success rate was uh, two out of three, 66.7% in the home setting and overall 74% because we had some transports to the hospital who ended up getting an epidural and Pitocin because we had some lovely like-minded physicians in my community in Los Angeles who are willing to give these women uh, a chance to continue their, their quest for vaginal delivery. We had an overall C-section rate in our, in our paper of 8.7% in twins. We had a nine, whatever that is, a 91.3% success rate with twins. Um, the reason that there's a short intertwin, uh, twin to twin interval is in the hospital is, is mainly habit or custom. It has nothing to do, very little to do with science. And that's because in the twin setting in the hospital, you generally are going to have to give birth in the operating room. You know, you're moved, like most women will give birth in the labor room with a singleton, but with twins, they tend to have these protocols where you have to have an IV, 
and you probably have to have an epidural in place and you're in an operating room and you're probably on your back and you know the anesthesiologist is standing by and you have a couple of nurses in the room and you may have two sets of teams from the nursery in the room and the first baby comes out and the baby's great but the the nursery team can't wait to get their hands on the baby so the delayed cord clamping is delayed for very long and you cut the cord and you hand the baby over there. And now you still got seven or eight people or nine people sitting around waiting. And they're not going to want to sit around and wait for an hour or two. So what the, what we were taught, what we were trained to do is go up with an amnio hook, break the bag of waters, and have the mom push out the second twin or do a breech extraction if it's not um, head down. And that's the way we're taught in those doctors that still do twins in the hospital. That's sort yeah. of the protocol and policy, yeah. but the way they do it. Yeah, that's exactly right. So how is it different at home instead? Because I think I wrote a story of Queen B coming like 10 or 12 hours after, something like that. Yeah, there was there was there's occasional sets like that. I don't mm. even have I don't have the patience for that either. So <laughs> um but what here's what here's what the literature says. The literature says the longer the interval goes between twins, the more likely you have the lower pH in the second twin, which can lead to a lower APGAR score. Generally, doesn't really mean much. Uh, if you have a lower one-minute APGAR score, by five minutes, they're usually all back to, you know, same as everybody else. But there is a lower pH. I was also found, which wasn't in the literature, that the longer the interval went, the more likely we were to have a postpartum hemorrhage, which is one of those risk factors in twins. So, so what I tended, what I initially did, I didn't have any limit on it. And the longest that we had was four hours and 16 minutes between twins. Uh, and I was going nuts sitting around. I just, you know, it's just, it's hard to do. <laughs> but part of the reason we can wait longer is because we're going to be there anyway. It's not like we're wrapping up, writing our orders and going off to our office or home or wherever we're going. We we stay three, four, five hours after a, a mom gives birth to twins anyway at the house. So we're really not in any big hurry. So our average, uh, you know, interval, interval was like, uh, 50, 48, 58 minutes, uh, somewhere in that range. And the, the range was anywhere from like, I think two minutes to four hours and 16 minutes. Um, but after about halfway through my career at home, I began to see the increasing postpartum hemorrhage. So I sort of tried to decide to give the women the information that said, listen, we'll leave you alone for 30 or 45 minutes. We'll put the baby A on the breast. We'll do everything we can to make labor come back. But if nothing's happening at that point, then I might want to break your bag of waters and, and move things along. And someone would say, sure, Dr. Stu, go ahead. Another woman would say, yeah, I hear you, Dr. Stu, but I don't want you to do it anyway. So then we would, we would be able to do it. <laughs> and uh, so there's, that's why the intervals are short in the hospital. It's simply out of uh, convenience uh, for the most part. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. And again, if the baby B startly, start, starts to not sound good, then, we, then mm -hmm. there's always a reason. But but even when baby B, you wait for baby B and baby B's doing fine and you have this longer interval, doesn't mean you won't, you, you won't have a small blood loss, but you're more likely to have a larger blood loss. Yeah. Yeah. Just so because the uterus worked, has worked a lot. <laughs> Say again? The utero has, has done a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. Well, and again, with twins in general, you're going to have more blood loss simply because the uterus is over distended, right? It's not even a right word because it's not over distended. It's properly distended, but it's distended more than than it would be for a singleton baby. And uh, so that's that's that. And then we wait for the placentas. Once baby B's out, we don't yank on the cords or anything. And we do delayed cord clamping. And even in monodi twins that have had no evidence of TTTS, there's no reason you can't do delayed cord clamping on twin A. I've heard 
doctors say to people, we have to clamp twin A right away because otherwise the blood could flow from one baby to the other. It's like, wait a minute, let's logically think about this for a second. They've been together for nine months. They haven't bled. Blood hasn't flown back and forth between them at all. Suddenly it's going to happen right after now. Theoretically, could it happen? Yeah. We could be hit by meteors as we're walking down the street too, but it, be, it, 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 it it's not a logical thing. These are things that are just said to doctors when they're in training and it gets ingrained and it never gets out of them. And they never take a deeper dive to look to see, does it really make sense what I'm saying? Because the words coming out of my mouth makes sense. Yeah, that's like exactly right. Yeah, that's like exactly. the baby will get too much blood if we delay cord clamping. How how will he get too much blood? <laughs> it's circulating. It's going in and it's yeah. going out. It's going yeah, in yeah. and it's going out, right? <laughs> so, and, and you know, I've even heard this, this, the silliness where if we hold the baby above the mom's belly with the cord attached, the blood will run out of the baby into the placenta. All right, this, this, uh, this is a doctor on video saying this. On, I saw this on Instagram. Uh, years ago, or maybe you it was to Facebook. send it to me, so I do another reaction. <laughs> oh, I have no, I have no idea. It was, it was years ago. It was probably on Facebook. It was probably before Instagram became even popular. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, we doctors say dumb things sometimes, and they don't understand. You know, uh, why does the American College of OBGYN recommend one minute of delayed cord clamping? Where did they come up with sixty seconds? Don't I? <laughs> yeah, they made it up. Yeah. Right. it's like <laughs> six. It's like six feet. It's like six feet apart. You know, or 24 hours of ruptured membranes or, or yeah. 42 weeks. Yeah, that's all made up, isn't it? <laughs> they are. These are, these are, they they have to have a number. So they give it a number. Yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. And it doesn't really mean anything. Yeah. Some babies are not okay at 40 weeks. Some mm. babies at 42 weeks are just fine. Yeah. So to have a number, one of the dumbest numbers ever is age 35. But mm. I get women that write to me and they say, Dear Dr. Stu, I'm an elder, I'm an elderly prima gravida. I'm over 35 and this is what's going on with me. It's like she's already labeled herself because it's so much out there. So true. The and I'm like 35 my... this year. I'm like, no, why? Right. I don't know. <laughs> so um, so that's about the twin twin interval, is is something that and and the third stage again. I didn't I never did active management of the third stage, which mm -hmm. which for your listeners means that. Once baby B comes out, you immediately give uh, a shot of Pitocin in the ma ma mom's thigh, or you open up the IV if you have an IV and give Pitocin. Yeah. Um, there is some data that supports that as, as lowering blood loss, but, th but that data never looks at the fact that Pitocin is a drug. Yeah. And we, I don't want to give it unless I have to give it. Yeah. So you let them so have I'm physiological third stage, so no Pitocin. No Pitocin, unless they've had a history of previous postpartum hemorrhages, mm -hmm. then it makes sense to do it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, yeah, it's just one of those things where, again, it's informed consent model. Yeah. But we do talk about the ups, you know, the upsides and downsides of giving an artificial oxytocin drug called Pitocin. Yeah. It's not the same as oxytocin, yet it takes up oxytocin receptors. So it, it does alter things. And, and again, I don't know that there's been a lot of research in it because nobody wants to look because nobody cares because there's no money in not giving Pitocin. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly yeah. right. So if we give a drug, it's like it's like vitamin K. Yeah. We're not going to study not giving vitamin K because yeah. we can't make any money not giving vitamin K. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> but going back to the placentas, actually, I think yeah. 
a question that I have is, uh, so if we look at the, you know, we are looking mainly at mono dye and dye dye with the placentas, which are the different case scenario with the placenta? I mean, like uh, first baby comes out and then the first placenta comes out or, and then second baby comes out and then the second placenta comes out. With, with dye dye twins, you're, you're going to almost, well, with all twins, you're almost always going to have both placentas come out after the second baby comes out. Mm-hmm. Because the uterus, the placentas shear off when the uterus begins to contract down. And it generally doesn't contract down much when there's still a baby yeah. inside. It's caused by the, but I mm-hmm. have seen in die die twins where twin A comes out and there's this really huge gush of blood. And you think, oh my God, she's abrupting or something else. And you just yeah. reach inside and there's a placenta sitting in the, in the lower uterine segment. Yeah. So a, A's placenta has separated. But once A's placenta has separated, if the uterus isn't contracting down because there's baby B is still in there, what's going to happen to that uterus? It's going to go and you're going to have, it's going to continue to bleed heavily. Yeah. So if that were, if you have a separation before B comes out, you almost always have to go get B really quickly Yeah. because otherwise the woman's going to bleed a yeah. lot because she has this big wound on the inside of her uterus which is normally stopped by the uterus contracting. Yeah. But the uterus can't contract completely because baby B is still in there. Exactly right. So I've seen it. I've only seen that happen once in 42 years where baby A's placenta came out before baby B came out. Yeah. So I I can't say ever or never or always or or whatever. Um, (laughs) That's exactly right. So normally the placentas comes after the baby. Right. Yeah, and if you're placenta geek, if you placenta geek, they're fun to look at because it's it's amazing how nature designs these things. Sometimes you see these two perfect central insertions, and sometimes you, especially in mono dye twins, you'll see some weird insertions. Sometimes you'll see some velamentous insertions or some marginal insertions or or whatever. But again, those things don't change anything in utero. I mean, sometimes it also drives me crazy. That's when I, exactly when... right. Can you just repeat these? Because we have a twins just here and they are honestly going off her because of this velamentous insertion. And they're just saying all the things that you can imagine just because they were able to see the insertion with the fetal medicine. They were able to see the insertion and the cascade of like things that they're saying to her started then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is the problem with having technology that outstrips knowledge. And we have, <laughs> we have color, we have color flow Doppler, which is overused. And they find these things because you don't do anything different about it. The only, the only insignificance where a, a velamentous insertion is significant is if it's, it covers the cervix and it's called a vasa previa. That's significant because that's like a yeah. placenta previa. The baby's going to have to tear through its own blood vessel to get out. Yeah. And that would be a problem. Otherwise, a velamentous insertion is is insignificant. And, he, and even the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says, again, and I don't agree with a lot of what they say, but they say sometimes they say smart stuff. And they say it's not an indication to intervene, um, to do anything anything different. And most velamentous insertions are found when, Bibi? When, when the placenta is out. <laughs> when your placenta comes out and everybody goes, wow, look at that. Exactly. Right, right. So finding it beforehand is simply a misuse of technology and then a fear-based model of care, which then scares people. And uh, why do MFMs do that? I don't know. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's like just be, just being obtuse. 
Yeah. I don't know if it's because it generates more revenue for them to, to instill fear. Yeah. I don't know if it's because they're just indoctrinated yeah. to see everything as high risk and therefore mm. they're always looking for high risk. You know, if you're a hammer, everything is a nail. <laughs> and because you only know one thing. And if yeah. maternal fetal and doctors only know high risk stuff, so then true. every person that comes to them is theoretically high risk because yeah. they're afraid that they'll miss something. Yeah. And the worst thing that can ever happen to an MFM is if they miss something. Yeah. So they'd rather err on the, I love this term, err on the, we talked about it on the podcast all the time, err on the side of caution. Yeah. Now that sounds True. like a, sounds like a genuinely nice thing, but if you actually break it down and what it means, it means making a mistake to be cautious. Mm -hmm. To err on the side of caution means to make a mistake. And so it's not a nice thing. And what they're doing isn't good. And they're planting these seeds of anxiety and doubt, which the mother is then pregnant the entire nine months, bathing her babies in fear and anxiety and stuff the entire time. And what is that doing to the baby's epigenetics? And what is that doing to the mom and the mom's ability to, to cope in the future and all, and, and all that stuff? They don't care. It's not taught. We yeah. don't get a lecture on that sort of stuff in medical school or residency. Yeah. They yeah. don't, they don't, they don't, they don't teach us that all that matters. This is one of my sayings that I teach when I teach my class. And again, it's not meant to be uh, a pejorative, but it, but it's all that matters to the medical model is a live baby in the bassinet Yeah, and how the baby gets in the bassinet and what happens to that baby, that mother and that mother's future babies is not the concern of the current doctor who's in charge of that woman's care at that moment. So all an obstetrician wants to do is get the baby in the bassinet because now it's no longer his concern. He no longer can be sued. It belongs to the pediatric department. It's not my concern anymore. And whatever hole or damage I did to the mother, I can sew that up because I'm good. And they are, and they're good surgeons and they're, they're, they're good at that. But yeah. that's, that's, and again, that's very callous the way I said that. But if you break it down, that is exactly what the model is teaching these yeah. doctors. Yeah. Get so the baby true. out. So true. So true. So I, right. if we, if we go back to the die, die, um, so die, die, they can either birth two placentas, right? Yep. Or, or a placenta fused. But they're not communicating. They're just fused. Yeah. Right. And you see that they're fused because in, in the middle, there is like a connective tissue or like it's something that yeah, is like you can see like separating. a little like membrane. You can see like a line of membrane. It's between line of membrane. Two. Yeah. The very clear demarcation between the two placentas. Whereas with, um, Monodai, you you don't have that. Yeah, yeah. So monodai, they only birth one placenta. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good. Good. Right. That's a lot of information. Thank you so 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 much for sharing all this with us. Do you want to add anything else for our women that are listening to this? And probably there will be also a lot of uh, midwives, doula, and birth workers listening to this podcast anyway. Yeah, I want to thank the midwives for teaching me that that to trust birth and to understand that we accept uncertainty and we can't guarantee a perfect outcome in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And so people will follow the guidelines that, that, that they use for their midwifery practice. They're still going to have bad outcomes, but if you follow the guidelines and the medical model, you're going to still have bad outcomes. And the newborn intensive care unit is often filled with babies who came into the hospital inside their moms in perfect condition. And somehow over that period of time, they were in the hospital, they ended up the NICU and nobody says anything yeah. about the fact that, that maybe what we did caused this problem. 
Yeah. They, they, there's no uh, self-awareness there. So, you know, I just think that, that we should, we should, you know, nature is formidable, but it's not, it's not intentionally dangerous. And to live in a, in a fear-based world, soaking your babies in cortisol and other stress hormones all that time, is just not a, not a good thing to do. And twins, again, twins can have problems. But if you if you look at if you just do your regular prenatal care, you'll generally pick them up. And the, you know who the best person is to pick up a problem in a twin mom? The twin mom. That's exactly. She'll tell why. you. She'll yeah. tell you. You know, baby B isn't moving as much, or mm -hmm. you know, my stomach grew too much. And I mean, I I, I blew up last week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they'll tell you when things are going wrong. When when because most of the time it doesn't happen. And midwives, because they're experts in normal, are so quick to recognize abnormal. Yeah. Whereas doctors, because they suspect everything is abnormal, <laughs> have a hard time with things that are normal. They can't differentiate the two. Yeah. So uh, I think women who are listening to your podcast who may or may not be pregnant with a singleton or twins should, even if they, even if whatever their, their, their insurance coverage or whatever else mandates that they go to the hospital or they have a medical doctor, doesn't mean you can't seek out prenatal care with a midwife. Yeah. <laughs> and, share, and have collaborative care, even if you're going to deliver with a doctor, because you're going to stay healthier. You're going to less likely to develop diabetes or preeclampsia or other things because you're going to eat better and they're going to, they're going to do preventative care. They're going to do stress yeah. reduction and talk to you about yeah. your sleep and your relationship and all those things. And so this doesn't have to be specific to twins. This can be, you know, with any pregnancy and with, with twins, I would say to anybody, find out early on what your chorionicity is, what kind of twins. It's very easy to determine by ultrasound. And there's no other way to determine it, by the way, you can't, do it any other way. You have to have an yeah, ultrasound. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then if you have die die twins, just take a deep breath, yeah. breathe out, <laughs> and know that yes, you're more likely to have, you know, hypertension or diabetes or preterm labor. But those are things that, you know, if you eat healthy and do those things, you can prevent a lot of that stuff. Exactly. Some of it you can't. Um, but you're not simply high risks because you have twins. Most twin moms don't have a problem. The problem is the way they're managed in the hospital that brings them in and, and induces them or does a section for them. And that's where the problem lies. And the whole, the whole anxiety that occurs during the pregnancy is not about the pregnancy. It's about what's going to happen. And when I get to 36 and 37 and 38 weeks, what are they going to do to me? And they're worried about that thing. So die, die twins is something that's very simple. And just, if you have normal monitoring, Maybe a scan at 20 weeks like everybody else, and then maybe one every four or five weeks after that, six weeks. They're going to want to do it more often. You don't necessarily have to. If your babies are growing beautifully at 20 weeks and they're very concordant, they're not likely to suddenly become discordant by 24 or 25 weeks uh, without some sign in the mom. It's very, very unlikely with die-die twins. With monodie twins, surveillance is important. It's a different story. If you're if you're diagnosed with monodie twins or that or mono model for that matter. Then you need you need closer surveillance, and you should be seen at least every two weeks. And if there's some suspicious thing on ultrasound, they'll probably want to bring you back in three or four days, and see what's changing. But remember that if things are suspicious and they want to bring you back in three or four days, they're not worried that your baby's going to die tomorrow. Because if they were worried about it, they'd bring you back tomorrow, or they put you in the hospital. So if they're bringing you back in a week or three to, or, or three to four days there's nothing you need to do. You don't have to worry during that period of time because again, they're going to err on the side of caution and they're going to bring you back more often than you probably need to. But the surveillance is important in monodie twins. 
And knowing that if it doesn't develop before, this TTTS doesn't develop before 28 weeks, then it's very unlikely to occur at that time. And you can take a deep breath and you can maybe make a different birth plan. In your country, your car is screwed because you really can't have twins at home unless you do what you did, baby, which is- Yeah, <laughs> free birth. Because free birth. I, I mean, like as midwife, we can't, like we can, but it's just so much risky for our registration because the hospital will report you and then they will suspend you. And then like, there's just so much involved. Like it's a politic game that most midwives don't want to play. Yeah, and until the mothers of, of Australia stand up and make yeah. make a big stink, you know, the, the the small number of midwives is not going to change anything. And the exactly. OB department, the OB departments and academic in, in institutions are not going to suddenly say, you know, we've been wrong. Let's uh, let's open up to home birthing and midwives and stuff like that. Yeah. They're not going to. That's not going to happen. So nah. <laughs> it's going to take the women of your country and my country to stand up and demand these things. In my country. We're starting to see it. We're starting to, yes, you know, yes. They, the lockdowns, the lockdowns increased the rate of home birthing. Yeah. And it increased the, it increased the suspicion of the medical system and rightfully so. And so I think we're seeing a, a, an awakening. And then of course, as there's an awakening, there'll be an intense pushback yeah. from those in power and you'll see the rules get even stricter. Mm -hmm. That's a sign that things are working because even though it sounds counterproductive, it's true. If they're getting stricter, it means that they they feel like they're in trouble and they're losing their grip. Yeah. And because no dictatorship ever goes down voluntarily, they don't. And it is a dictatorship. What's going on in this? They, I mean, medicine does marvelous things. I already told you about the TTTS surgery, and a lot of things, but our numbers and our outcomes belay the fact that we're doing good now. We're not yeah. doing good now, and yeah. for all the reasons I mentioned earlier in the podcast. Mm -hmm. So they can't say that their their model is the ideal because it sucks. <laughs> Period. <laughs> right. And that is it. And, need, and, and the other thing is we need to train, we need to encourage the institutions that are training future doctors. Yeah. Or midwives, because midwives are becoming more medicalized too. We need mm. to, to train them to the, in the skills that make our profession special yeah. so that we can honor our obligation to give women the choices that they deserve. Yeah. Um, because the decision of how to give birth does not belong to the medical institution or the physician. It belongs to the informed woman. Yeah. And we have usurped that in the name of safety. But there's a famous French philosopher uh, called Albert Camus who said, the welfare of humanity is always the alibi of tyrants. And they're always going to use safety as a way to manipulate you. And we saw that if you, people didn't see it in the last three years, you know, you, that you, you know, you, you're dead. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You, you, or you're not, you know, or you're, you know, you're an ostrich. You buried your head in the sand and you're not paying any attention to it. Yeah. That's because, exactly right. Because and you they, are. You are coming to Australia as well to teach us um, all the skills, isn't it? Yeah, I'm really excited. It's a long trip. I'm going to be in Australia for almost five weeks. I think I'm going to be in Adelaide and yeah. um, Sydney and yeah. Gold Coast and Brisbane and Melbourne. Yeah. Yes. And if people want to find out about those things, they can go to birthinginstincts.com website yeah. and click on the uh, events tab and it's, yeah. the calendar will come up. And uh, even if you are a doula or just a, a, somebody interested in birth, yeah, you know, to understand... To come to the seminars 
and understand what these skills are yeah. so that you can better counsel the women that you're caring for. Mm -hmm. it, it, it makes it worthwhile. It, you know, I just, uh, and I love doing it. And we have a lot of fun. The, the groups are small. We generally try to limit it to 15, yeah. no more than 24 mm -hmm. um, birth workers or yeah. anybody. We love to have doctors. Uh, hopefully some doctors will come. Yeah, doctors they, will be amazing. Hey. A lot of them won't because they're not going to change the way they practice anyway. Yeah. But they should want to know this skill because every now and then, if you're a physician and you're in the hospital, some woman's going to walk in with two feet sticking out of the vagina and yeah. they're not going to know what to do. Yeah. And if they knew what to do, that baby would be out in 30 seconds or a minute. Yeah. And if they don't know what to do, it'll take them 20, 30 minutes to get the baby out by a cesarean section. You'll have a damaged mother, a damaged and, and a, and either a dead or a damaged baby yeah, and don't know what to do. And it's a skill that, that God, you'd think they'd want to know. Yeah. It's being I, an obstetrician. Right. I know. I, I know where I live at the moment. We do have three hospital. Um, one is a private hospital. They don't do bridge birth. One is a um, secondary hospital. They don't do bridge birth. And one is a tertiary hospital. It depends who is on, but uh, 90% no so yeah. where are you we just um i'm in newcastle which is two hours from sydney so okay. we just do them in the community so yeah right so women in newcastle have essentially no choice no unless they have a private midwife or they free birth well can a private midwife do a breech delivery at home mm. oh they can mm -hmm. they just can't do twins yeah Oh, okay. They can so do we can oh. like we can do twins, but it's hard to find other midwives that will come to the twin birth. So if I say yes, I do twins, I need two more midwives. Yeah. And that's where the hard part is. So wait, I thought you said it was illegal to do that. No, no, it's legal, but like if they do find out, they will report you. And then what happens? Then you will get suspended. Then they will look into it. And then, like, if you've done everything right, which we will anyway, they will give you back your registration. But that's take like six between six to twelve months, and you've got no work. So, and what does that what does that cost you in legal fees? Uh, it really depends. We've got insurance, so normally oh. the insurance will like you know look after that. But you've got six to twelve months to stood down, stay down from your work. So, like, it's just like for a lot of midwives, it's just not work worth the risk you know and it yeah, it's, just, it's like having a having a sword hanging over your head like that just yeah. just makes yeah. and it's not worth it because because taking you away from caring for the rest of your clients in that community yeah, yeah. so yeah so essentially it's very difficult for yeah. women all over the world to um yeah. to get this thing which is is normal yeah. as normal could be it was a, just a normal vaginal birth until they decided they didn't want it anymore yeah. and then they manufactured a bad paper back in 2000 and they decided that they were going to ignore all the papers that supported breech birth. And they were going to just choose this cherry pick this piece of paper exactly. because it, because of confirmation bias, it's what they wanted. It's the same thing that happened with the arrive trial. I don't know if your listeners know about yeah. that. Yeah. Right. Another podcast, another time. We'll talk yes, about that. One. That's exactly okay. right. Thank you so, so, so much for being with us. I really appreciate your time and your knowledge about all these things. You're very welcome. And I'm looking forward to tomorrow because you're in tomorrow and I'm still in today. Ah, yeah, that's true. I'm in your yesterday and you're in my tomorrow. Is that kind of, so I just true. always, I always love talking to my Aussie friends because 
because of that. It just it's something uh, very interstellar like. It's like yes. a fifth fifth dimension. Yes, uh, it is. You're, it is. You're in the future. I'm talking to you in the future. It's really That's cool. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks, baby. Thanks for Thank having you. me on. Bye. Hey, my friend, thank you so much for listening again. I think we are in for something really special in this podcast. Let's start this new movement. Hey, buckle up. There's a lot of new things and awesome things that you're going to hear from me. And as you know, just do me a favor, please. Just take a screenshot, put it in your stories and tag me. I promise I will definitely reshare you. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye.